Mike did a good job of teaching uh, on Genesis 39 last week, right? And he's not here, I don't think, to receive your, your gratitude. But make sure you send him a text or a call or just tell him thank you. Um, it's not a very comfortable thing to get up and to teach the Bible to people on a regular basis. And um, I'll tell you that from experience. It is, it is difficult to prepare, but um, you know, it's very rewarding as well. Yeshua says, whoever does and so teaches, even the least of the commandments, will be called great in the kingdom of God. So there is a reward that comes with teaching, but uh, there's a greater level of scrutiny. The book of James says, not all of you should become teachers because you're judged more strictly when you, when you do teach. So um, I take this role with a lot of, a lot of weight and, and um, humility as well. But um, somebody tell me, just raise your hand or just shout it out. What's one thing you learned from Genesis chapter 39 last week? What's one thing he taught you or that you learned from your study? I want to try to refresh your memory a little bit. Anybody? Say again. Keep a positive outlook. Keep a positive outlook. Yeah. How many times was Joseph's robe taken from him by force? Twice. Twice. Good. Once his brothers took the coat of many colors, the katonit pasim, and then the second time was who? Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife. Yeah, he's been stripped of his robes. Right. What's another thing that you may have learned last week from Mike's teaching? Anybody? When you think things are going well, they come crashing down. When you think things are going well, it may come crashing down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we see um, he's, he's sold into slavery by his brothers, right? Things are pretty low for Joseph. And then he's elevated, and he becomes this, almost this leader within the home of a man named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking official in the Egyptian empire at the time. But then suddenly comes crashing down. Why? Because he's falsely accused. What was the false accusation brought against Joseph? Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. And that she said that he raped me, right? Remember, she, she brings up in chapter 39, verse 14. She says, you brought in a Ivri, in Hebrew, or a Hebrew, to make fools of us. So not only is she falsely accusing him of rape, when she herself was trying to coerce him, sexually speaking, then she brings race into it. And she's like, this is a gross Hebrew that you brought in, right? So she's like a liar. She's a racist. She's, she's a hypocrite. A lot of things going on here. And then it says that Yosef's master took him and put him in prison. Then it says in verse 21, if you're there, verse, uh, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph showing him grace and giving him favor in the sight of the prison warden. And the prison warden made Joseph supervisor of all the prisoners in the prison, so that whatever they did there, he was in charge of it. The prison warden paid no attention to anything Joseph did because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, Adonai, the Lord, prospered it. You see, Joseph where, it seems like a guy, wherever he ends up, he, he prospers, doesn't he? Why is that the case? Is it just luck? I always tell young people, especially, be a Joseph. Wherever you're planted, whatever job you end up with, whatever uh, career, whatever class, marriage, whatever, you, you want to be a Joseph. You want to be the best at it. Not for glory, not to outdo someone else, but because Paul says what? Everything you do, you should do what? As a form of worship, to the glory of God, unto the Lord, as if you're offering a gift unto the Lord, right? Now imagine if everyone in this room left today and went into their respective jobs and we lived that out. If we said, you know what, the, in my job, I'm like putting a, driving a screw into a piece of drywall or something. I'm doing this as a form of worship. 
how would that change my perspective of doing that? And then how well would I, would I do that if I knew that this was a sacrifice to the Lord? Or, or for some of you, it might be like making Subway sandwiches or whatever you're doing it for your job. But you're doing it as a form of worship. Number one, the people that you're doing it for, the customers, the clientele are very appreciative of that. And they will give glory to the God that you worship because of that. Number two, your supervisors will really appreciate that as well. You know, any interview you go to, if you sat down with the supervisor and like Brian just got a new job and he sat down and did an interview. If Brian sat down and did an interview and said, I'm a follower of Yeshua of Nazareth, of Christ. And just so you know, just so you know, just a little, little uh, caveat here. Anything that I do in this job, I will do it like I'm worshiping my God. What does that say to that supervisor? Wow. Really? You mean that? Right? Now, unfortunately, that's used too flippantly sometimes and too many... Christians or believers don't do that when they say they're doing it, and so it doesn't really carry a lot of weight now. But one time I went, actually it was a subway, I joke about subway. One time I went into a subway and I was, I just enrolled in a Christian university, and I, I rode my skateboard, 18, 19 year old Gabriel rode his skateboard down to the subway about a mile away, and I walked into the subway, I needed a job, and the guy says, uh, where are you coming from? You know, where'd you move from? I was like, I moved from the Panhandle, Florida, and I'm coming to school here. And he goes, where are you going to college? And I said, Southeastern University. And he goes, oh, I love to hire Southeastern students. Here's an application. This is just a formality. Fill this out. And when can you start? It was just like that. And I was like, wow, because of the reputation that these Christian students had at this university, with this man, he was just like, yes, please, come to work here. And when can you start? And I walked out. I remember um, my friends were with me, and I walked out. And they had gone to the Publix a few doors down to look for a job. And I walked out, and we met back in the parking lot. And they were like, how did it go? And I said, I guess I got a job. And they were like, just like that, you got a job? And they are like, we had to fill out this application on the internet, and we were going to call us. And they never did get a job. But it was like, yeah, I just got a job, just like, just like that. So when you're a Joseph, you find favor wherever you go, wherever it plants you. But sometimes it lands you in jail, doesn't it? And we think, oh, it's not going to be hunky-dory, everything's going to be good to go, but sometimes you're going to find yourself in like an orange jumpsuit or something. But do what's right regardless. Do the next right thing, and the Lord will prosper you. So let's go to chapter 40. You guys ready? Sometime later. Now in Hebrew, this is vayahi achar hadavarim. Sometime later. And this is a code word, and I'm going to show you, give you proof for this, for the last days. In other words, yeah, we're about to get a narrative of what's going to happen in Joseph's life. But we're supposed to see this as code word that what we're about to enter is a parenthetical and prophetic narrative. Okay, you got me? Now, where else is this language used? Let me get some people to go to Isaiah 126. Isaiah 126. Let me get another person to go to Isaiah 2.2. Isaiah 2.2. Let me get another person to go to um, Isaiah 11.10. Isaiah 11.10. And then let me get a fourth person to go to Joel chapter 2, verse 28. I'm going to read them again. You ready? Isaiah 1.26, Isaiah 2.2, Isaiah 11.10, and Joel 2.28. I want to show you, now these are all prophetic books. These books fall into a category, a genre of the books of the Bible that we call the prophets, right? Joel and Isaiah, two very well-known prophets. We're looking for language that says, it came afterwards, or it was in those days, or vayahi achar hadavarim. Okay, so who's got Isaiah 126? 
Anybody? Read it real loud for me, Hannah. You see that after that, or after those days, and it's talking, Isaiah is talking about that after the end times, you will be called what? What does it say? City A city of righteousness. Speaking of Jerusalem, right? All right, who's got Isaiah 2 2? Who's got it? You got it, Chris? Read it nice and loud. Will come to pass in the last days that the mountains of Adonai's house will stand firm as the head of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills, so all nations will flow to it. You hear the language? It'll come to pass after those days. Okay? Who's got Isaiah 11? Brian, I'll go front. Sorry. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place and there it is again in that day or after those days that same language and then last week we got Joel 2.28 who's got that you mind reading it Brian it will happen afterward but I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy your old men will dream dreams your young men will see visions there it is perfect it will happen afterwards okay so you see the language there did I prove my point to you that we're about to enter a parenthetical we're taking, a, we're taking kind of a, a, a pause in the narrative, so to speak. We're supposed to think of this, yes, as literal, but also as prophetic. Okay? So it says, it came to, ta- it came to pass, about that time, the Egyptian king's cupbearer and baker sinned against their lord, the king of Egypt. It actually says, Chatai committed sin against the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh became angry with his officers, the chief, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, these two men are men who are tasked with feeding and vetting the food that their king will ingest. Now, what's one of the fastest ways that you can assassinate a king? Poison. Poison. So these men are, they are so well trusted that they're going to test the food before the king eats it. And if they die, then the king's life is spared. That's how loyal these men are supposed to be. They're supposed to be like secret service. So something made Pharaoh angry. We don't know what. So he put them in custody in the house of the Sar Tabach. Now here's, here's Sar Tabach in Hebrew. Sar is like, Sar is like a prince. Or a guardian, we could say a prince, sometimes a messenger, and tabach is like, uh, sar tabach is like the, um, the, the uh, innermost, we could say like, innermost uh, like dwelling, okay? So in other words, he's like, he's not just the, the prison warden for the every Joe Schmo guy, but he's like, the king's prison warden for the king's like political prisoners. This would be reserved for someone, and this guy would have been considered maybe like an executioner. This is a space that is reserved for people that potentially try to take the king's life. Okay? There's not much hope of getting out of this place. That's where they're at. In a prison. In a prison. In the same place where Joseph was kept. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph to be with them. Now, we have an interesting relationship with prisons. Now, prison and the prisons here is 
so hard. So, I'm sorry, I misspelled. So hard. And this word is, I think, exclusively used in the book of Genesis. And right here in this narrative is it used only. A sohar is like a prison. And it maybe comes from the same root that means something that's round. So don't think like this rectangular or square room, but think of something like a round pit or something that's round, okay? So a sohar. And we have an interesting relationship with sohar because in the Bible is given lots of commandments on how to deal with people that break God's law. But never once do we see that you're supposed to imprison someone. And, you know, the people of Israel told, you know, you're to put them outside the camp or even stoning or whatever that forms the capital. But never once does God ordain imprisonment. And anytime a society uses a lot of imprisonment for its criminals, that society has a big problem on its hands. Like, think of, like, Guantanamo Bay, for instance. We're holding all these uh, alleged, uh, like, um, insurrectionists and terrorists, and we don't know what to do with them, right? But prison is not really a part of God's plan on how to punish criminals. Does that make sense? Yeah. But it is used perpetually to punish people of faith. So we have an interesting relationship with people in prison. And um, we'll see that play out later in the, in, the, in the first century as well in the New Testament. You ever, um, go, go with me actually real fast to Hebrews 13.3. Hebrews 13.3 is it? When you get there, just do me a favor and read it nice and loud. Hebrews 13, 3. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in bonds as found with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you are also in the body. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, those who are in prison, remember them. And in doing so, you will be with them in their suffering. And, you know, we live in this little bubble called the United States of America, where for, for the past couple hundred years, we have not had to face imprisonment or execution for living out the ideals of our faith. But that time is probably going to come to a close, and it may come to a close in our lifetime. Right now, in the country that borders the United States of America to the north, Canada, <laughs> Canada is starting to put people and believers in Sohar for their faith, right? It is a very ungodly form of punishment for people who are godly sometimes. But that's just the reality of it. We have this interesting relationship with it, though, don't we? We have an awkward relationship with it. And it says, the captain of the guard charged Yosef to be with them, and he, if your, if your translation says served, cross that out, it's rather sharat. It's right here. Shin Reish Tav Sharat. He Sharat them, which you're like, what does that mean? It's used a lot in the book of Exodus. It's used all throughout the book of Exodus when talking about how the high priests minister to the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple. Minister. So it's, it's priestly language, in other words. So it says that he put him in charge of them, and then Yosef comes along, and he ministers to them like the priest will end up ministering in the tabernacle to the God of heaven. Interesting, right? Doesn't that add more meaning to it? So when you're put in prison, and then people are put in prison with you, do you just bask in your misery 
and say, oh, we're in here you know, unjustly, right? Man, let's break out of here. Let's escape. Or do you say, hey, let's, I'm going to use this opportunity to bring you closer to the God of heaven. That's what Joseph, that's his mindset, apparently, while they remain in prison. Verse 5. One night, the two of them, the, king's, the uh, king of Egypt's cupbearer and his baker, they're in prison. They both had dreams. And each dream with its own meaning. Now, interesting, we got two guys and one dream each. So how many dreams? Two, yeah. Now, what's interesting about this is a dream is called a kolam. It's right here. Chet, lamed, mem. Kolam. A kolam is a dream, and it may be connected to the word for a window. A window. And dreams are very interesting because they freak us out sometimes, don't they? <laughs> they really do. Now, we see Joseph has a close connection to dreams, doesn't he? Dreams are what got him in trouble in the first place. But let's do this real quick. Let's read these dreams, and then I want to do a comparison, a contrast and comparison or whatever, to the dreams of Joseph before his betrayal and then these guys' dreams. You want to do that real fast? It says, each had a dream with its own meaning. Verse 6. So Yosef came into them in the morning and saw that they looked sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers there with him in the prison of his master's house, why are you looking so sad today? And they said to him, we each had a dream, a cholam, and there's no one around who can interpret it. Interesting, so these guys had a dream, and they were so deeply moved by this dream, they knew there had to be something more to it. And Yosef said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me it, please. Now Joseph here comes into the story, and he's saying, ah, I too have had dreams. Not only that, I could probably interpret the dreams that you had. I have a divine gift. I can, I can receive from God the interpretations of the dreams that you just had. Now, the only other place we see someone say this, where they go, the interpretations belong to God, and then interpret dreams of someone who is in a high-ranking official is who? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. Daniel says he's been given a dream. Someone tells him a dream, and he says, don't interpretations belong to God? You think Daniel's probably thinking about Joseph as he's saying that? Well, here's the dreams. So the chief, chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. In my cholam, in my dream, there in front of me was a vine. And the vine had three branches. And the branches budded. And then it suddenly began to blossom. And finally clusters of ripe grapes appeared. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and I gave the cup to Pharaoh. And Yosef said to him, here is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will be giving Pharaoh his cup as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But... Remember me when it goes well with you and show me kindness, please. And mention me to Pharaoh so that he will release me from his prison. For the truth is that I was kidnapped from the land of the Ivrim, the Hebrews. And here too, I have done nothing wrong, 
that would justify putting me in this dungeon. Verse 16. When the chief, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Yosef, I too saw in my dream that there were three baskets of white bread on my head. In the uppermost basket, there were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. Now, Matthew 13, it likens birds to the work of Satan, by the way. Verse 18, Yosef answered, here is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head off of you, and you will hang on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. So let's pause here. Let's back up and say and establish this. How old was Joseph when he was sold into slavery? 17. 17. Good. How old will he be when he is restored and given the position of number two in command, the viceroy of all of Egypt? 30. Good. You guys read ahead, didn't you? So do the math. 13 years since the day he was betrayed to the day that he's going to be restored. He's in this, uh, he's a servant at best and then a prisoner and an inmate in the king's dungeon at worst. We don't know exactly how long he's in either, but we do know that it's two years until he's restored back. So he could have been in prison for a long time is what I'm saying. But he had these dreams. Now, what are some similarities between the dreams of these two officers of Egypt and the dreams that he had of his brothers and his family back home? What do you guys think? Similarities? Anybody? No? Yeah, Marcus. They involve food. They involve food, yeah. Or the products that produce food. Good. Any other similarities or differences? There's two dreams. Good. In every scenario, Joseph, remember, has two dreams. And then these guys have two dreams. And then later, who's going to have two dreams? Pharaoh. Pharaoh is. Good. What are some differences, though? Hmm. Yeah, Jackie? One's about bowing down. The other's lifting up. Yep, yep. How well received were the first set of dreams? Not at all. They were rejected, weren't they? But his own family, his own brothers said, you are Meshugana. <laughs> You're crazy. Right? You've got like a demon. <laughs> you know where I'm going that, right? And then it's not until he gets into the known non-Hebrew Gentile world that they say, yes, give us insight into the divine realm, into God's word. We're, we're starving for it right now. And then his dreams or the interpretation thereof are, are very, very warmly received, aren't they? It sounds like Yeshua to me in a way. Right? His own brothers, for the most part, cast him off and rejected him. And then Paul says, but if their rejection of him, it means what? Salvation for the Gentiles. Right? But then he says, you Gentiles... I hope that you provoke my brothers to jealousy so that in doing so, my brothers will then be saved. There we have it. Romans 11. Paul just encapsulates this entire story of Joseph and his brothers, doesn't he? 
so sure the baker, uh, or yeah, the baker was thrilled over his interpretation. Yeah, the baker was not thrilled over his interpretation, yeah. But what's interesting is about dreams is that how many, if I ask, and we, we have a weird, awkward relationship with dreams too, don't we? Because in Joel 2, it says, and, and, and I think it was Bryant that read this, I'm not saying, that I will, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And it says that the old men will dreams dreams. They will have a cholam. How many of you believe we're living in the last days? I think most people in this room just raise their hand. So, how many old men are dreaming dreams? <laughs> yeah. So, here's my point. We should be receptive to people having dreams. And we should listen to these dreams as if they are divine communication to those around us. But the problem lies in that there are people that will come and say, I had a dream when really they just ate too much pizza the night before, right? And I always say, time is the worst enemy to a false prophet. If a prophet makes a prediction or says, I had a dream, the best thing that you can do is test it against the written word of God and then sit and then wait. Refrain from hitting the share button, all right? Just refrain, all right? Just wait on it. If he's proven false, turn it off. If he's proven true, it might be a man of God or a woman of God. But the dreams are so interesting. Now, how many of you want to hear, if, if I asked you all in this room to come up here and start sharing dreams that you had, that you feel like a divine voice of God or some kind of direction from God, things would get pretty awkward pretty quick, right? And some of you in this room probably would start kind of squirming a little bit. Like, yeah, I think I had it. But, and then some of you would be like, man, I don't know. But I don't know if, like, you know, Gabe's dreams are going to be from God. They're going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? Some people have some weird dreams and then claim that they're from God. And then some people have some legitimate dreams and pray that, and say that they're from God. But I had a dream one time that absolutely came true. You guys want to hear it? And it's completely meaningless. But it came true. So... In high school, I shot rifles competitively. Mm -hmm. And I was probably a junior in high school when I was shooting on this, this team. And it was a Saturday morning, and we were loading, well, the, on a Friday night, let me back, on a Friday night, I had a dream that I was walking down the median of Highway 90, which ran in front of my high school, four-lane highway. I was walking down that median, and I was walking through knee-high grass in this median, and cars were driving by me. And I saw in the grass a hat. And I reached down and I picked up the hat and I looked at it and it said Vietnam veteran. And I looked at it and I said, this is Sergeant Major Helms's hat. Sergeant Major Helms was our, our marksmanship teacher. He was our instructor. And he was a Vietnam veteran. He was a command Sergeant Major. And he always wore his hat. And I said, weird, that's Sergeant, and then the dream ends. The next morning I get up and I drive to my high school and I'm getting in the bus to go to a rifle match somewhere, maybe like Tallahassee or something like that. And of course, we're pulling the bus out and onto Highway 90 in front of my high school. And guess who's driving the bus? Sergeant Major Helms, our coach, our teacher. He's driving the bus and he picks up speed on Highway 90 and he has the window open to his bus right there to let air come in and ventilation. This is back before all the bus, buses were air conditioned. 
Well, guess what? His hat, the hat that he always wore, his Vietnam veteran hat, it got sucked out the window like this, and it landed right outside the window of the bus, exactly where I picked it up in my dream the night before. And I went like this, and I watched it as we drove, and I was like, it all came to me, and I said, there was someone sitting next to me, and I said, that just landed where I picked it up in my dream last night. And of course, the person next to me was like, what? <laughs> You're crazy, you lost your brain. Now, what that dream means, I have no idea. It's completely meaningless. Other than the fact, it really intrigues me that for some reason, the space-time continuum like folded up in my brain and I was able to see something that was going to happen less than 24 hours later. I have no idea what it means other than that. But dreams are really, do you know that there's famous people that have had dreams that predicted big events that were to come? And they just so happen to tell people about their dream and then those events happen. You might think, well, that's kind of coincidence sometimes, right? Yeah, sure, it could be coincidence. Did you know that, I think it was 10 days prior to Abraham Lincoln's assassination, he had a dream that people were in the west wing of the White House crying. And he walked into a room and he asked, why is everyone mourning here? And he says, they turn to him and they say, because the President of the United States just got assassinated. 10 days later, he gets assassinated. There is um, a, a psychologist by the name of Carl Jung. He had a dream in 1913, I think it was, late, of 19, late, late in 1913, that much of Europe between the Alps and I wanna say like Italian Peninsula or somewhere around there, was enveloped in a yellow cloud, a, a sea of, of yellow, like a, like a fog and that there were men screaming and dying and the yellow turned to red. Now, if you know your history, what would happen later in 1914? The start of World War I. And what was one of the new technologies that were utilized in warfare mustard during gas. that time was mustard gas. It was like a fog that set in. And that was the first of the usage of chemical warfare was in World War I. But there's lots of other instances where people have had dreams. And, and the, the, what's interesting, I like hearing about people that are not of faith, that don't believe, they're maybe like they're atheists, and they have dreams, and those dreams come true. That's what intrigues me the most. But we have this interesting relate. Now, there's a lot of dreams in the Bible. And before I go to the slide and show you, there's, there's something like um, 21 dreams in the Bible. Ten are in the book of Genesis alone. What do you think? Now, it has the most dreams in the Bible. The book of Genesis does. What other book in the Bible is second to that? Take a guess. Revelation. Daniel, I hear Daniel. Revelation. Revelation, yeah, I hear Revelation. Any other ones? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Yeah, you would think, right? What if I told you you're all wrong? <laughs> it's the book of Matthew. There it is. Matthew has the second most dreams, really just in the first five chapters of this book. Lots of dreams in the book of Matthew. But yeah, let's keep going. Where do we leave off? The baker's dream. The baker's dream, yeah. We're... Verse 20. And on the third day, now anytime you hear in the Bible the language of third day, what are you supposed to think of? Resurrection. Resurrection language, yeah. Which was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a party for all his officials, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer back to his position so that he again gave Pharaoh his cup. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted. And he, 
and uh, as, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Nevertheless, the chief, chief cupbearer didn't remember Joseph, but he forgot him. Uh-oh. Now, look over the next time, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. The next time we see someone forgetting Joseph, bad things are about to happen. Exodus 1.8. Exodus 1.8. Now there arose a new king in Egypt, and what? He did not know about Joseph. And then that starts this whole story of the oppression of the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. You see, the people of Israel have this interesting relationship with Egypt as well. Egypt is to be viewed, remember the Hebrew word for Egypt, it's Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, which means literally the place of constriction, the place of tightness. And we're supposed to see in this a picture of a womb. Okay? So, like I know uh, Emily just walked out, I was going to embarrass Emily. But if you've watched Emily week after week, the little Isabelle in there is, is getting a little bit, she's losing a little bit more room each week, isn't she? And she's eventually going to want to burst out, right? She's eventually, okay, it's time for me to come out now. All right, I'm tired of this. But Mitzrayim is the picture of a womb. And Joseph is a picture of the seed that's going into the womb that will then bring the entire nation, and then that nation will grow into the womb. And eventually, Pharaoh will say, these people have become too numerous for us. We can no longer control them like we want to control them. They are a threat, a physical threat to us. Let's, right there, the, the womb will begin to contract with hardship and forced labor. And eventually, the waters will break, and then the baby will be born. Born again, right, as a new creation. And so that's what we're supposed to see with this weird dynamic. And that's even happened throughout the rest of history as well. Egypt and Israel. God uses Egypt in a very unique way all the way up into like 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. God has used Egypt in a way of testing and trying the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. Now, I told you as we first got going that this chapter 40 starts out with Sometime later, or Vayahi Achar Hadavarim. This is supposed to be a prophetic, parenthetical narrative we're supposed to understand here. So, how so? How is this prophetic? I can point to one thing, and that there is something blatantly missing from this chapter that was present in the chapter prior. What is that something that's blatantly missing? And when I say it, you guys are going to be like, oh, yeah, I missed it. It was very present in the last chapter. And I read it several times before I started teaching on Genesis 40. What's absent? God's name. God is not in the story. Much like we see with the story of Esther, right? God is not present, seemingly. But is God working this together? Absolutely he is. He is weaving this together even though he looks like he stepped back for a moment. And he's not there and his name is not mentioned. And he's not directly involved with all the details and the minutiae of the story. He is weaving this story together for ultimately, number one, his glory. And number two, the preservation and the salvation of the Jewish people, the people of Israel, and the world. Sound like the gospel to you? Yeah. God's not present. Now, I believe that this story, this little story that's happening here, is a parenthetical kind of prophetic statement and narrative that's supposed to tell us about what I call the apostolic age. The age after, after Yeshua 
is gone from our midst. And there's an age of, of trying. There's an age of testing. And then it says, on the third day. And that reminds me of the resurrection that is to come. Where God will judge both the living and the dead. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 4 real quick. 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I bookmarked it, so I cheated. But I'll go ahead and read it while you're turning there. I solemnly charge you before God and, the Yesh- and Messiah Yeshua, who will judge the living and the dead when he appears and establishes his kingdom. Proclaim the word. Now, how is God going to judge the dead? Living, okay, yeah, I see how he might do that. How will he judge the dead if they're dead? He will resurrect them. Anytime I say like, oh yeah, there will be a resurrection and he will resurrect everyone, the living, you know, the dead. He will resurrect and he will judge. Now go with me to Daniel chapter 12. Because again, I think Daniel is picking up on this. Daniel chapter 12 and look with me at verse 1. When that time comes... Mikael, the great prince who champions your people, will stand up. Now, you hear the language there? When that time comes? That's prophetic. It's talking about the, the transition period between the Olam Hazeh, the age that is now, and then the Olam Haba, the age that will come. Okay? The age, the, the, this current age and the age that... Okay, so at, when that time comes, Daniel is saying... It will be a time of great distress, unparalleled between the time they became a nation and that moment. At that time, your people will be delivered, and everyone whose name is found written in the book. Verse 2. Many of those who are sleeping in the dust of the earth will awaken. How will they awaken? Through resurrection. Some will awaken to everlasting life, And some will awaken to everlasting shame and abhorrence. You see, the third day is always a picture of the resurrection. And I believe that this is talking about at the resurrection, there will be people who will be restored. Okay, you are faithful. Then there will be people who will be condemned. You are unfaithful. You were given the opportunity and you didn't take it, right? So this chapter teaches me a lot. And my thing keeps sliding down here. It teaches me a lot. And some lessons I learned is that sometimes God chooses dreams and people interpreting those dreams to communicate and further his will. Now we're told to accept dreams as being from God, but we're also told to test them. Test everything. And how do we test dreams? Like I said, against God's written word. If someone comes to you and says, I had a dream, and God told me this, that, and the other, but it's in defiance of God's written word, then no. Right? It may have been the pizza, or it may be that you have some ill intent. And that's how this can be potentially problematic today. Do you think in, uh, in my lifetime, and especially in the five years of doing what I do here at Dothan Messianic Fellowship, I've had people come to me and tell me they've had dreams? You think so? <laughs> Not a chance yet. Yeah, absolutely, I have. 
And if you're called to any sort of uh, leadership or pastoral role of any kind and be a shepherd, listen, you need to be so sure in your minds of what you believe. And you need to be, in a way, a Thomas that says, I need to see the nails in his hand. Because people come in and out of this place on a constant basis. And one of the first people they come to and they target with false doctrine, false prophecy, or pet doctrines, or heresy, who do you think they target first? And here's how it always goes. Here's how it always goes. Well, not always, but most times. They come in and they lavish me with kind words and praise, which are insincere. They lavish me with all these kinds of stuff. And it's like, here, let me butter you up like a little piece of toast. Right? Let me do all this stuff for you and say all these wonderful, kind, flowery things to you and stroke your ego a little bit. Right? Because I know that you're a man of flesh and you like that. Right? And then it's like, okay, now I've kind of, I kind of buttered him up a little bit. Now I'm going to take that butter knife, and when he's not looking, boink, right in his back. Or, hey, what do you? You're, they might not stick it in my back right away, but they might say, what do you think about this doctrine or this interpretation of scripture? And I'll say to them, hmm, that's actually a heresy. That's in direct defiance of what scripture says, actually. And then, okay, here's the butter knife. Yeah, bink, right? And let me take as many people as I can with me. We've got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful because the enemy is still prowling around like a lion, right? So that's my, my, my little side trail for you guys. But um, God has a precise purpose and reason for putting his servants in trying circumstances is another lesson that I took from this week. And we might say, but why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? That's one of the best, uh, you know, like mo- most poignant accusations that people bring against the God of Israel. I can't believe in that God that allows bad things to happen to good people. Well, first of all, is it bad? Is what happened to Joseph, ultimately, if we know the end of the story, is it going to be bad? Is him sitting in prison for maybe 11 years, is that bad? At the time, Joseph is sitting there and he's saying, this is bad. Or you might, if you don't know the end of this narrative and this story, you would say, yeah, that's bad. But we know the end, don't we? And if we could go back in time and sit in Joseph's cell and tell him the end of the story and give him hope, we would, wouldn't we? And some of you have had to walk through really bad situations. You're like, where is God in this, right? God's name is not in this chapter of my life. God takes people of unshakable faith and he puts them through suffering. And here's the thing about those people, those really godly people, is that when they go through suffering, they know that God's in control. And they know that he's sovereign. And they don't resent the suffering. But what God is doing in taking that person of unshakable faith and putting them through hardship is he's testing the faith of those around him or her. And he's saying, I want to see how you react to this. And let's just be honest. In the five years that I've been sitting up and standing in this place and teaching the word of God or discipling or counseling people, I would, I would go out on a limb and say that the hardship that Adrian and Ariana have been through in the past year with his helicopter crash, and because they are people of unshakable faith, I know that she doesn't want me to say that, unshakable faith, I would go out on a limb and say that that has done more to encourage and strengthen your faith in this room 
than my five years of standing up here and just blabbering at the mouth? So many of you are shaking your heads yes, which confirm my suspicion. <laughs> so, when, be careful if you, if you ask for, for faith, if you ask for patience, what will God send you? If you ask for refinement, what will he give you? Yeah. If you're going through suffering, if you're going through hardships like Joseph was going through here, consider it a badge of honor. God has chosen you to test the faith of the people around you. Make sure you see the higher purpose in it. Now, I work for a home builder, and I'm a construction foreman, and I printed these out this morning. These are, these are pages. Now, if I, if I handed someone this page right here of this blueprint, and these are all the dimensions and, the, and the, all the specifications of how the cabinets are going to be in this house that we just finished and we closed on last week. If I, if I gave someone, you would say, okay, yeah, I don't, I see that there are cabinets and maybe some sinks. I don't understand all the drawings and everything, but like, I know that that's maybe some kind of a plan, right? And, and, I, and I was like, okay, well, here, why don't you take and, and just look at, look at this one with all the squiggly lines all over it, right? And, and maybe we could build the house with this in addition to that. Could you build the house? Could you understand what is happening and transpiring to this? Or what if I was like, okay, fine. You know what? Let me give you, okay, let me find a good one. Let me give you all the layout for the rafters and the ceiling, okay? And then you'll know how to cut all those angles and everything and lay all, the, all those rafters. Still, could you complete that house? Could you see the bigger picture of what the house will look like? No. I mean, here, I have 15 pages of plans, and these aren't even all of them. My printer just ran out of paper. These aren't even all of them. But all these plans have one thing in common, is that they cannot successfully build that house in and of themselves. You cannot get a feel for that house, which is looking at this one piece of paper, or even all of these pieces of paper. But in the right hands, if I disseminate these to the right people with the right skills, I can then sit back and wait and allow those plans to come together where I could all take you in a bus right now and drive you up to this house that just got completed and the homeowner is actually closing on and moving into and is a blessing to them. I could take you, I could take you there. And you could say, wow. You know, you could study these for 10 years but you don't fully appreciate the plans until you step foot into that house. And you say, wow, it's really come together. The beauty of this home is just more than I could ever have imagined in my mind. And there's a, the, the homeowners came into the house for the first time. Actually, that's what they said. They were looking around. They were like, wow, the last time we were here, it was kind of like a war zone. <laughs> right? And sometimes our lives are kind of like a war zone. We're like, God, what are you doing with this? Right? But... When we see that God works all these little things and these stages and these steps of these pages together in our own lives, then and only then, so it's completed, and we walk into the home and can appreciate, God, you had a plan in all of this. You are a master architect. And we'll see later in the story of Joseph, Joseph says to his brothers, don't fear for your lives. Don't be angry at God. Don't, I am not angry at you. Why? Because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That he would bring a great Yeshua salvation. I hope and pray that you are people and that I am a person that sees the divine plan and hardships that we have to walk through. That, yeah, we don't understand it all. All the pieces haven't fallen into place yet. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I hate using 
all these stories from the book of Genesis to kind of like encourage us, but I think that's a very biblical thing to do at the same time. It's not just all about us. It's more about God's people, and, and it's, the, the pages of Scripture are to us more than they are for us in a way. But at the same time, Paul says later that all these pages of Scripture are for our edification and to learn about the last days. So I think it is a biblical thing to do is to encourage you using the pages of Scripture, but just know that you're not the main character of Scripture, okay? I don't want you to get too big of an ego. One of the other lessons I learned, that a redeemer of the world will come. He will provide bread, quote-unquote, and salvation, but first must be wrongly accused, suffer, and then exalted as in a foreign land. It is then and only then that his people will seek out the salvation. And we're going to see that. You know, there's a story where a, um, a rabbi, um, I'm sorry, a, a Jewish man, a very observant, pious Jewish man goes to his rabbi. The reason being is because the man, he, he had a son, and the son grew up, and his son moved out of his house, and he left his home and became a Christian. And the Jewish man was very disturbed by this because he feels like he abandoned his Jewish faith. So he goes to his rabbi, and he says, Rabbi, I've got a problem. And the rabbi says, what is it? And he goes, my son, he's left my household. And he's converted to Christianity. He's even changed his name. And the rabbi says, I'm so glad you came to me today. Because my son, he said, don't tell anybody. My son moved out of my home. And he too became a Christian. And he took on a Christian name. What do we do? And the Jewish man says to the rabbi, I think we should pray about this and pray for our sons. And so the rabbi and the man, they, they pray together and, they, and, and then God speaks to them. And God answers them. And God says, I am so glad you have come to me today because I have a son. <laughs> and he left my household. But no, I'm kidding. What we see, though, with the story of Joseph is that, and I know Jesus did not convert to Christianity <laughs> or start a new religion or anything like that. He was a faithful Jew. But what we see is that Yeshua had to be born a Jew. And then he had to, his identity had to change, and he had to become the savior of the world, in a sense, and preserve his people and his brethren in doing so. And then and only then would his brother come to him and his identity be revealed. Remember, he even changed his name. His name got changed as Zafnathpanea. We're going to see that play out. I don't, want to be, I don't want to ruin the story for you guys and be a spoiler, but I guess you could always read ahead too.